Did you hear that? Look, if, if you're here this day and you have not a clue about the Bible, you might go, that's in the Bible? Not exactly your best life now kind of passage. Everything is meaningless? The Hebrew word there for meaningless is the Hebrew word hevel, and in other places it might better be translated as to saying everything is absurd. It's almost like a bitter joke, the author of Ecclesiastes says. Everything is meaningless? Really? Look, I would dare say that many of you in this room have friends who are atheists or maybe agnostics. Maybe some of you in this room fall under that category. And as you hear those words in Ecclesiastes, you might think to yourself, yep, that guy gets it. That is the world we have. That's more like the world than in sort of this optimistic drivel I hear mostly. But maybe there's a part of you, if you claim belief in the Lord Jesus, who listens to those words and thinks, maybe inwardly, that you're nodding your head going, hmm, <laughs> he, he has his finger on something there. Maybe there's more truth to that than I perhaps would care to admit publicly. Why is it that those who have a belief in God have a certain sympathy with those who have no such belief? Why do any of us in this room who would say that Jesus is Lord, why, if we hear from our colleagues or our neighbors or our relatives who go, I don't think I can go where you go, and they explain to you why they think what they think, why do some of us go, yeah, maybe I don't go where you go, but I don't think you're totally off your rocker for thinking so. Why do we have sympathy for that kind of idea? That is the animating premise for a book that came out last year by a guy named Joseph Minich entitled Enduring Divine Absence. He writes as a Christian. He writes as a philosopher. But he writes with the understanding that even those who have belief, when they hear from those who do not, go, yeah, I see why you might go there. And he ventures a thesis about why there is that kind of sympathy for those who either have an agnostic or an atheistic posture. And here's his thesis. In modern civilization, what we have before us is this exponential rise in the capacity to observe, to predict, to create, and to manipulate. Meteorologists, doctors, Sociologists, ethnologists run the gamut. They are able to observe things and predict things and create things and manipulate things. And with that increased capacity to do all things, Minich argues that that existence shapes the way you and I think about what is really real. And the more we sense that ability to do all those things, the more we start to think The only thing that's real is what I can observe and predict and create and fabricate and manipulate. That's the only thing that's real. All of this talk about the invisible world and the immaterial world and the spiritual world, whatever provides you in the way of optimism, that's the joke. This is it. This is reality. And never does that 
sense come over us more acutely than when we have come face to face with this thing called suffering. Suffering that you might kind of put euphemistically, as one philosopher does, of desires denied. When your world is crumbling beneath your feet and all you know is pain and sorrow and heartbreak, it is in a moment like that that Joseph Minich argues that one thing feels really true, that God might be absent. C.S. Lewis, in the memoir, in the wake of the death of his wife named Joy, said this, No one ever told me how much grief feels so much like fear. Fear that there would be no joy in his life again, literally and metaphorically. Fear that the normal, new normal would never feel like a world he wanted to inhabit anymore. Fear, most of all, that this belief in a God who is both powerful and good would just not be sustainable in his own heart. And that kind of fear in C.S. Lewis, I think, might be captured really vividly and poignantly in a moment in the film Shadowlands that I'm about to show you that is still an imagined scene but is reasonably derived from many of the things that C.S. Lewis says in his memoirs unto grief. This moment is C.S. Lewis coming back to be among his colleagues for the first time since Joy has left. And here is him grappling with what he's lost, but also all of his friends trying to help him believe that there might still be a reason for hope. Watch. I wouldn't say this to Jack, but in the circumstances, it's better sooner than later. Is he taking it very hard? Yes, I've heard so. Rupert, could we have a word together after Yes, sir. Good evening, Jack. Yeah. I wasn't going to come, but then I thought I would. Life must go on. I don't know that it must, Harry, but it certainly does. I'm sorry, Jack. Thank you, Christopher. We're all deeply sorry, Jack. Thank you, President. Anything I can do? Yes, uh, just don't tell me it's all for the best, that's all. Only God knows why these things have to happen, Jack. God knows, but does God care? Of course. We see so little here. We are not the creator. No. We're the creatures, aren't we? We're the, We're the rats in the cosmic laboratory. I've no doubt that the experiment is for our own good, but uh, it still makes God the vivisectionist, doesn't it? Jack. No! Not do. It's this bloody awful mess, and that's all there is to it. I'm sorry, Harry. I'm sorry, Christopher. She's not fit company tonight, that's all. When what provided him a joy he never imagined having could be taken from him with such finality, then fear can manifest itself away in all manner of ways. And in that moment, all he knew was sort of an anger that perhaps he'd never felt before. To believe in the God of the Bible is to believe that God is both powerful and good. To live on this earth is to experience suffering at some point, not 
if, but when and to what degree, and usually that suffering is rather unevenly distributed in a random way from our perspective. So here's the question. How do you believe in God's goodness when you're suspicious of his absence? We all will face that moment. Joseph Minich offers us this idea that's actually coming from the Apostle Paul in our passage today, and it's this. Faith amid suffering rests in part on a hope in glory. Faith amid suffering rests in part on a hope in glory. On a hope in what you cannot see. On a hope what you can only trust in on the basis of what he's told you. The question before us is, what is that glory? Look, some of you in this room, you hear me say about hope and glory, and the first thing you're thinking is, oh great, a sermon on a pie-in-the-sky belief. Maybe, if he's wrong. If it's true, then we are worth hearing him out. And we're hearing about what this glory is. There's a sense in which there is a context to this glory. There is a true content of this glory. But there's also a sense in which this glory has already commenced. And we're going to look at each of those three and then ask ourselves what sort of response does it invite from us? What is this hope of glory? Let's find out from what Paul has to say here in Romans 8, starting in verse 18. If you're able to stand, I wonder if you would. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you were with us last week, then you may remember that at the end of the preceding passage, in a passage that Paul was talking to us about what does it mean to have an identity of faith in Jesus, the last aspect of that identity was to think of yourself as an heir, that a promise has been made to you that you will receive something that you can scarcely imagine, and that inheritance is shared, shared with the one in whose name We have sung today in the name of Jesus that what is his inheritance is ours. Everything that belongs to him now belongs to us by virtue of our faith in him alone. 
Full stop. But you also heard Paul say at the end of that passage last week that when it comes to our inheritance in Jesus, not only will we share in this thing called glory, whatever that is, don't worry, we'll get to it. We should also not be shocked that we will share in his sufferings. That what befell him may very well befall us. And there may be something essential to it. And there may be something of great opportunity in it, even if there is something full of bizarreness and unreasonableness in it. The first thing that Paul wants to help us see is a certain context. That our suffering, whatever it is, has a context, and that context is in the context of glory. That for us to suffer, he is saying that first of all, we have to invite consideration of a larger storyline, of a greater context. And why does he have to say that to us? Because if you've ever suffered, you know exactly what it does to you. It narrows your gaze. It's all you see because it's all you feel. And because it's all you feel, it's all you think. And when you can't stop thinking about that, you can't stop thinking about it ever ending or it ever being better. Paul is saying that there is a context to your suffering and that context has a context of glory. And therefore, it's an invitation for us to pan out. Look, the, the, the history of human suffering is incalculable. The history of any particular human suffering is sometimes impossible to fathom when you hear their story. But Paul is saying this to us and to anyone who has suffered. If you are suffering simply by virtue of your belief in Jesus and in too many places in this world, like Indonesia and Egypt and northern Iraq and Syria and in places in Africa where if you just proclaim his name, the gun sights have been set upon you. If you suffer in that way, you're invited to see that suffering in context. If your suffering involves somewhere in a hospital room or in a hospice ward or in an abusive home, or in places where you know nothing but shame. That pain is real. Those tears and that terror is legitimate. But he's inviting us all to consider a context of suffering. Whether you are suffering for belief in Jesus, or just suffering as a consequence of this world and its afflictions, those fears, those terrors, those tears, they're legitimate. And the desire to seek relief is not only understandable, it's encouraged. And for any of us that have an ability to help mitigate their pain, we are invited, if not mandated, to do so. It is not simply to sit here passively and just enjoy the suffering. But even in that, Paul is saying to us, no matter how you are suffering, in the minimum ways you are suffering, and for whatever long season you are suffering, he is saying that there is a day coming in which that suffering will all be of no worth of no mention. That it will be swallowed up as if it were a passing thought. And to us, we hear that and we go, how can it be? Paul is here, first of all, to help us see our suffering in the context of a glory that will follow it. And of course, That raises the question, what is this glory? Is it nothing more than just an end to our suffering? Look, if that's all he means by glory, and that's all he's going to say, it's fine. It's fine, I'll take it. But fortunately in the passage, he doesn't simply say, 
there will be a glory later. He is going to map out for us a sketch of that glory. That's the second thing he wants to tell us. What is the content of this glory now that we're trying to see it in its context? To understand its content, we have to understand where it applies. And the first thing he wants to share with us in the sketch of this glory, in the content of this glory, is that there is no limit to its reach. Five times in this passage, you heard one word, and that word was creation. Not just everything that is, but everything that has been conceived in the mind and hand of God. That's what he means by creation. And the funny thing that Paul does in this passage is that he takes that word creation, everything that either is like plant life or mineral life or animal life, stuff that we wouldn't necessarily assign with consciousness or thinking about anything other than instinct, he personifies it. He, he considers it, he, he casts it in the frame of like what you and I are. He, he, makes it speak, he speaks of creation as if it were a person. Why does he do that? Why does he speak of creation as eagerly awaiting that glory? And that word there in the Greek for eagerly awaiting is the idea of creation craning its neck and getting up on its tiptoes as if looking over a fence, trying to see in the distance what is this glory still to come. Why does he want to sell creation in that way? Because for the first seven chapters of this book, he has certainly made it clear that God's focus and the redemption of the world has humanity as its focus. And yet he's out to tell us here in the middle of chapter 8 that God's plan, while it has us as its center, the scale of the glory is greater than us. He's come to work something on our behalf, but not on our behalf alone. The reach of this glory has no limit. It is in all creation. And he's come to show us that therefore he has a cosmic wide interest in all that he's doing, including with us. Yes, Psalm 8 says, what is man that you're mindful of him, a son of man that you care for him? But he also says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. This week, you might have seen the most highly resolution picture of the sun ever shot. Sit with that image this afternoon and just consider what it might evoke. The heavens declare its glory. His concern is cosmic-wide, even though it has untold import for you and for me. And that cosmic-wide concern he has is not only because he made it and made it good, but because that which you and I suffer from, the creation itself suffers from also. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. He is saying the creation has its own ecological crisis, but mostly because it has its theological basis. Paul was trying to tell us that the creation is as broken as we are, and that it is under a kind of brokenness that it itself is yearning for an end to. Look, okay, creation broken. Let's, let's pause for, for a minute. Why do, why do many people move to Western Carolina? You might say the breweries. I would argue it's the beauty. The beauty you can hike in, the beauty you can swim in, the beauty you can kayak in, the beauty you can run through, the beauty you can drive through, and then you go ask Mickey Beeland how it all fits together. It's the beauty. It's the awe. It's the wonder. 
Even on your worst day, you can look out at the sunrise and go, ah, that's okay, that's something. Paul's not denying that. He's not saying that the creation is a mess. He says it's been subjected to futility. Okay, what's that word futility mean? It's the Greek word matiotes. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the text you heard Karen read from Ecclesiastes, everything is meaningless, everything is matiotes. Everything is futile. Everything is absurd. Not that it was a waste of effort. But that which was purposed in creation has been thwarted. It has run into a brick wall in too many ways. And if I might, if I might condense the, the, the bizarre, um, very abstract idea to that, let me, let me borrow a, a little story from a book by Annie Dillard called The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. If you were here with us uh, last spring and you were with Christian Christianity, uh, Tim Keller invoked that book. Um, Annie Dillard, in the midst of great uh, trial and travail and her own tribulation, she went out to nature for a long time because she thought she could find the, the serenity of nature and that that would sort of be healing to her. And in some way it was, but in other ways she just discovered that nature was as red in tooth and claw and full of sordid and awful things as she might find in the human world. But in that book she remembers a story of a friend who had found the chrysalis of a polyphemus moth. And a polyphemus moth, if you've ever seen a picture of it or held one up close, is when its wings are fully unfurled, it looks like it has two large owl eyes on each wing, as if staring at you, as if to ward off the predator, as if to see that you're being watched. Back off. The way a polyphemus moth ever gets that size is that when it comes out of its chrysalis, when it emerges from its chrysalis, it emerges with this sort of lacquer on its wings while it's all folded up. And what it has to do in the first few minutes of its emergence is it has to stretch those out because that lacquer is going to dry. And when that lacquer dries in place, then those wings are rigid and strong and it will be able to soar for all of its days. But on this day, in Annie Dillard's story, her friend had put that chrysalis in that mason jar. And when it emerged... And it tried to unfurl its wings. It could not because it was captured in the constraints of that jar. And there that lacquer dried. And there those wings were still folded up. And too late did they let that polyphemus moth come out of that jar. And Annie Delward remembers the moment in which that moth begins to walk upon a wood, knowing full well that it would never fly all its days. That's purpose thwarted. That's futility. And that, Paul says, is what the creation's been subjected to, not because of its own fault, but because of the high-handed rejection of humanity against the care and authority of God. You want to take care of the environment? You know why? Because we broke it. The framework in which God means to fill it with glory has no limit. So what is the content of that glory? What is the glory that fills that frame in which there is no limit? It's really three things, he says in the passage, that all go together. What is this glory? It is, first of all, in a completion of what God has begun. For the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. He's talking about a day in which what he purposed in humanity would finally come about. Paul writes to the church of Philippi, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That there will be something that he's begun in us which will finally reach its fulfillment. There will be a culmination of all things. And at last, that will mark something done. The director's cut. 
the final cut of what he intended. What does he mean to complete that which he began? Something he calls freedom. He says there in verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What does he complete? He completes their freedom. Freedom? Freedom from what? Freedom from the one thing with manifold forms that most holds us captive, and that is our fear. It has not been that long since we listened to what Paul said in the first four verses of Romans 8. The gospel is out to tell us that we have in that gospel a freedom like no other freedom. And what is that freedom that he brings to completion at the day of Christ in this hope of glory? A freedom from the fear of condemnation for all that we've done and all that we are. A freedom from the fear of what sin and sorrow can take from us. A freedom from the fear of what death will do in us and before us and when we meet it. But most of all, a freedom from the fear of wondering whether we ever shall know the deepest kind of welcome that we're all seeking. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful essay, or rather, what a wonderful sermon on this passage. He entitled it, The Weight of Glory, and he meditated long and hard about what the nature of this glory is. And when he came down to it, he realized that glory was not just sort of this um, abstract brilliance. Glory was this, he said, glory is good report with God, acceptance by God, response acknowledgement and welcome into the heart of things, the door on which we have been knocking all our lives will at last open. That's freedom. Freedom from all those fears. Oh, friends, do you realize, do I realize how much my life, your life, is, if you will, basted and breaded in those kinds of fears? Do you realize how many of your thoughts and your choices and your impulses and your inclinations, whether conscious or not, are an attempt either to ignore and avoid those fears or to medicate you away from those fears or to compensate for those fears, none of which are successful? How many of you, your first thought when you get out of the bed in the morning is some sort of fear about what you know not of? How many of you go to bed at night as if bed is a refuge from whatever you're running from. This glory, whatever it is, is a freedom from those fears and a freedom into that welcome, that door upon which we've knocked that will at last open. That's what he'll complete. And what adds to that completion is the third aspect of this content of this glory. The very renewal of our bodies. He says there in verse 23, For we, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. If you were here last week, you might be doing a double take. Because last week he talked about adoption, and this week he's talking about adoption. But last week he said this, You have been given the spirit of adoption as sons, have been. 
in my grammar class, that sounds like the past tense. In this week, he's saying, we're awaiting our adoption. That sounds like future. So, Paul, which is it? It's both. There is a past sense in which it is a settled reality and a future sense in which there is a fullness yet to be known. Look, when you adopt a child, you fill out a bunch of paperwork. And you go down to a courthouse, and you raise your right hand, and you make a lot of vows, and the judge hammers the gavel down, and boom, done, ratified, sealed, signed, sealed, delivered, done. That person is a member of your family, and they are entitled to all the rights and privileges thereof, and the discipline. And that whatever is yours is now theirs too. But what does that moment anticipate? It anticipates going home. And knowing a place where it's safe. And growing into the fullness of the relationship that's just been ratified in some sort of official sense. And now has to be ratified yet in the life coming. Look, it is true. You've been given the spirit of adoption if your faith is in what Christ has done for you on your behalf. Your belonging to him is a settled reality. But this adoption anticipates, in that moment, anticipates a fuller sense in which it is true, in which you will know him as you are fully known. For when he comes, we will see him as he is, for we shall be like him, John says. We see through a glass darkly and then face to face. And in that moment, our bodies though moldering in the ground, will know again life. That is the content of the glory in which we're called to be hopeful. That is what he's out to complete. And so far, what I've told you sounds wondrous. But it is also susceptible to the charge of being wondrous, wishful thinking. Look, who wouldn't want to believe that all my sorrows and my suffering will be swallowed up by glory. Who wouldn't want to believe that? Who wouldn't want to believe that I shall know a freedom from every single fear to its depths, that that will be an end to that? Who wouldn't want to believe that my body, though it decays, shall know life? Who wouldn't want to believe that? But that doesn't make any of it true. It just makes it what we wish were true. Why should we believe any of it? Great context of glory, great content of glory. But why should I believe any of it's true? Because the third thing that Paul wants to tell us is this. That that glory in which there's a context and in which there's a content, there is a glory in which a sense it's already commenced. The whole of this passage, almost the whole of it, has its eyes in one direction. The future. The future tense. Except one verse. Verse 24. Hear it again. For in this hope, we were saved. In this hope for the future, we were saved. That there is something that is already true. That there's a salvation that's already begun. And that salvation is its own glory. The one who came as us, the one who came for us, the one who died to justify us, to declare us righteous in his sight, and to give to us his record of righteousness, in that we were saved. It's done. In that is grace, and grace never dies. And in that is glory. 
And what Paul is out to tell us is this. Look, I'm not pulling the idea of the hope of glory out of thin air. I'm actually just considering to help sketch out for you the trajectory upon that which has already been done is headed. And therefore, for you and I to have any hope in that glory still to come, it must rest on the gratitude of the glory already commenced in Jesus. That's the gospel. I've got nothing else for you. That's all he's got. That's why I said at the top of our worship service, to exercise faith, to to learn how to not be anxious, is to look back so that you can look forward. That's how glory has commenced. That's the nature of the gospel. But how is that hope in glory cultivated? Because right now, I've just given you a bunch of ideas, and if you think you're just going to go, okay, got it, great, everything's fine now. What does Paul say about this hope of glory? He says, pointedly and yet curiously, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You hear Paul say that and you say, hope, uh, hope that is seen is not hope. Well, yeah, we know. Paul, don't insult me. I know that. I know if I'm hoping in something, it's because I don't see it. Yeah, yeah, we don't really believe that until we suffer. Because in that moment when we suffer, the one thing that we're hoping for is for an end to our circumstances. And properly so, and reasonably so, and, and to whatever extent we can fight to find relief. Okay, sure. But this hope of which he's speaking is not a hope that you can find hints of right now in your moment. It is a hope that is entirely seen with the eyes of faith. And therefore, he talks about this hope, this waiting, as a thing done with patience. I've used this illustration with you before. But everybody waits for something, but not all kinds of waiting are the same. You can see two people at a bus stop. They're both waiting for the bus, one of which is fretting and pacing and looking at his watch, and cursing at the next bystander that comes by, going, where's the bus? Do they ever run on time? That's one kind of waiting. And then there's another kind of waiting. The person sitting on the bench, not pulling out their phone every four minutes to see what time it is, not checking to see if they're at the right place, but noticing the birds in flight, or noticing how the leaves reflect the light, or wondering to themselves, why did people arrive at walking at that pace, sort of normally. Just present, waiting. The difference between the two kinds of waiting is the one that's fretting and pacing is wondering if the bus will come. The one that is sitting and beholding all things is just wondering when the bus will come, not if. So how do we wait with that kind of patience? How do we cultivate it? That's the rub, right? Because all this stuff is out there. I know that. How do we cultivate it? Look, C.S. Lewis said, grief feels like fear, and fear like nothing will be good again, and worse, fear like you are all alone in the universe. And Joseph Minich in that book, Enduring Divine Absence, says, when you suffer, or when you are shaped by all the ways in which we can observe and predict and manipulate the world, you think God is not real. But to that predicament, Joseph Minich offers a recommendation. 
One that I think Paul would eagerly nod his head at. One that has everything to do with what it means to wait with patience. How do you wait with patience for anything? The same way you wait with patience for this hope and glory in which you cannot see. Three things he offers. Ready? Here we go. The way you learn to cultivate patience for the hope of glory is, first of all, as needed, from time to time, reminding yourself why you believe. You remind yourself why you believe. Last spring, we listened to Tim Keller talk about why it would be a good idea to believe if it were true. In April, we're going to listen to him talk again about why it might, in fact, be true. Why do we believe what we believe? Look, some of you in this room, you have adopted a venture at some point in your life, whether it's a business or a neighborhood thing or something like that, and you have ventured on a great goal. You know where you're going. You're not exactly how sure you're going to get there. And then you get about 15 steps down the road, and you hit a brick wall. And then, then another brick wall. And then another brick wall. And you're asking yourself, and your partner and your spouse or whatever it is, you're asking yourself, now, remind me, why did we do this? What was this sort of grand truth that we based this idea on that, that led us to venture in this way, what are you doing in that moment? You're reminding yourself why you believe in what you've set yourself out to. You have to remind yourself in what he's done. You have to remind yourself of why it's true. That's the first plank. Here's the second. You have to embed yourself in a community of belief too. You have to embed yourself in a community of belief too because there will be lots of days maybe lots of years, in which the idea of this hope of glory is only a pipe dream. And then, as Martin Luther put it, you sometimes need to have people have faith for you. The strongest metaphor in this entire passage is when Paul compares to the hope of glory and the waiting for it as like a woman in labor who knows pain, who knows groaning, who knows the thought, is this ever going to be end? When is this going to end? And yet in the back of her head, she always knows there's going to be a baby at the end of this one. And that's what keeps her in the pain, what keeps her in the groaning. And what does she need in that moment across her tears? She needs somebody sitting beside her going, just breathe, honey. She needs somebody beside her saying, just two more pushes, honey. She needs somebody beside her going, hey, man, we're crowning here. In the groaning, in the indignity of it all, it's the community of people surrounding her that helps her believe the baby's coming. You have to embed yourself in a community of belief, even if that's hard, even if that's unsettling, even if that's unnatural. Because you won't want to trust in the hope of glory at many times, and sometimes people got to have faith for you. That's the second thing. Here's the third. It has to be your pattern and your habit to humble yourself before the Lord. Whether you fast or pray, or read, or sing, or sacrifice, or give, whatever it may be. Like I said last week, there's never a bad time to humble yourself before the Lord. And let me make sure you are hearing what I'm saying. I am not saying you must pray four hours a day in order for God to smile and be happy with you. If that's what you think I'm saying, then you're not listening. I'm only talking about what Joseph Minich started his book with and what Paul says to us also in Romans 12. You are being shaped. I am being shaped in more ways than I ever want to admit. And those things that I observe and create and predict and manipulate, they are shaping the way I think about what's real. And therefore, to humble ourselves before God as a matter of habit and pattern and discipline and hopefully in time, joy. 
That is simply an effort not for you to gain his favor, but to push back against all the ways in which this world is going to shape you anyway. What does Paul say in Romans 12? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Your mind. Whatever you must do to humble yourself before the Lord as a matter of a rule of life, it's not to make him happy. It's so that you might believe he's real when instead you feel like you're suspicious of his absence. Let me end it on this story that my wife found an article last night in the BBC. 300 years ago, there was a village called Em. And at that time, there was already a plague outbreak in London. And by mail came a spool of fabric in which that fabric were fleas that had come from the rats who had sent the plague flying. And a distributor in the town put that wet cloth in his hearth to warm it up, and in doing so, stimulated and triggered the fleas. And he was the first to die within a couple days. And then others died. And in that moment, the village had a choice what to do. Before there were antibiotics, before there was any way to contain or whatever else they do, what would they do? And the rector of that town, a rector by the name of Mampesson, he gathered the village and said this, the only way to keep this plague from spreading further is for all of us to stay. None of us to flee. None of us knows who's infected. But we do know one thing. If we are and we leave, we're only going to spread it. And the town in that moment elected to stay. One woman buried six children and her husband in the span of eight days. By the time the plague had done its ravages, the city, the village had lost 275 people. The rector himself buried his own wife who died within three weeks of the outbreak. Why did they stay? Because they didn't want the disease to spread. But when you listen to the accounts of descendants of the people who survived, that village had one thing in common that accounted for why they stayed. They believed that God held them in the palm of their hand even in their death. And as a community, they believed that. Today, our ears, we hear that and go, how foolish. Maybe. And if there was no God, it would have been. But for God to hold them in the palm of his hand is what kept them and what allowed them to love the rest of their country by allowing themselves, perhaps, to put themselves at risk. That, friends, is a picture of hope in glory. That, friends, is a picture of faith amid suffering. It is a hard word. It is a hard story. But that is why God and Paul reminds us that God has given us his Holy Spirit. Because this hope does not come naturally. That faith does not come naturally. And that love comes only with help. And it is for that help that we pray. And for that help that we now hope.